Daniel. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all here. I just want to reiterate a couple things. One, uh, just how much you matter. Whether you're a member of the church or a visitor, this is your first time. Just really glad that you're here. Um, you matter to God. You matter to us. And, uh, and I don't believe you're here on accident today. This may be part of your regular routine, um, but I believe that God has you here uh, for a purpose and has a specific word to speak to you. And I believe he's up to something in your life. And uh, if you're listening online later in the week at work or driving down the road, I believe the same thing for you. Um, just want to remind us, too, if you know somebody who is unable to be here on Sundays, somebody who's homebound, somebody comes to mind right now, if you could just put a reminder in your phone to check in on them this week, see if there's anything that they need. Um, if, if nothing else, just know that it's really lonely when you're stuck at home. And so a, a kind message or phone call would, would go a long ways. And just want to remind those of us who are able to come in person to not forget those who can't. Um, we are in Malachi chapter 3 this morning. We're going to dig in uh, a little bit of context uh, as we get into the passage. I think it's important to, to know what's going on historically and what's going on spiritually with the nation of Israel. So they had um, about a century before Malachi was written, they were in captivity. Okay, they were exiled, they were in captivity um, by the Babylonians, and it was around 538 BC. So that would have been early to mid 6th century BC. Um, Cyrus, King Cyrus, uh, same name, no relation to Billy Ray or Miley, uh, he issued a decree and allowed the Israelites to return back to their homeland. And shortly after returning uh, through two different prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, God speaks to the nation and said, okay, you're home. Now rebuild my temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, turn your hearts back to me. And then he gave them some promises. Here's a couple of the promises. One of them was that I will bless you and I will make sure you have more than enough to live. And not only that, other nations will take notice and then I will invite them or integrate them into our family. There's this beautiful promise given to the nation of Israel, and now you fast forward 80 years uh, to now the early to mid-5th um, century, and the nation of Israel, as we're learning, did not turn back to God. They turned away from God. And so the book of Malachi, this last book in your Old Testament, is God calling the nation back to himself, to return to himself. And he's confronting things that are going on within them. He's confronting their doubt of his love. They doubted that God loved them. So it's where Malachi begins. See how I have loved you. He's calling them back to worship. He said, hey, I noticed that you're bringing your, your cheap trinkets and your, your leftover stuff into my house. And you're calling that a sacrifice. And I noticed that you're bringing in the sheep that's about to die. And you're, and you're calling that a sacrifice. And and God says, hey, return to me and worship. I'm after your hearts. If I have your hearts, the stuff will take care of itself. He confronts the priests for endorsing this style of worship. Then he confronts the men who were just widespread divorcing their Israelite wives and going after wives from foreign countries who worship foreign gods. He's calling them to return to their covenant relationship with him and with their wives. And so now we've made it to a place where God's going to confront what's going on with their tithes and offerings. We'll pick this up in verse 6, Malachi 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, 
You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So, again, we've talked about how the book of Malachi follows the outline of the gospel, beginning with God's love and God changing our hearts for him and then our response to his goodness as we worship him. So God doesn't go after their morality. He goes after their doubting of his love. And here, even before he confronts another thing, he's reminding them, he goes, I haven't changed. I do not change. We think about what that means. You know, sometimes we forget that we were created in the image of God, and we start to see God in the image of us. And we will map onto God human things whether it's the idea of authority or love or kindness or patience, when we think of God in this way, we filter it through what we've experienced with other humans and we create a God who's like us instead of seeing us created like him. Okay, so what, what we know about humans is we change. God's saying, I don't change. We change, don't we? Like I can, I can be in a great mood one moment and then the smallest thing can happen and light a fuse, and I can lose my cool. I can even, I know it's hard to believe, I can get angry. And I can sin in my anger by yelling at somebody whom I love, like one of my children. I can go from cool as, as a cucumber calm and peace and just enjoying my day to boom. And then an hour later, I'm humbled and I'm feeling guilty and I circle back around and apologize why because I change I, I'm trying not to I'm trying to be consistently what I want to be but I change God doesn't change he's not patient with you on Sunday mornings losing his cool on you on Mondays he doesn't lose his temper in that way and so what he's saying is he's reminding the people who he loves hey I don't change and then he gives them an example of something that hasn't changed within his character. He says, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now what does he mean by that? Well, he gives us an explanation in the very next sentence when he says, from the days of your fathers. Like, he's going all the way back. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From the, from the time I first began to interact with your family, from the time of your fathers, you have turned aside. Like, this isn't a new thing that's happening here. You've been turning aside since I first called Abraham. It's the first thing Abraham does is turn aside and tries to take things into his own power, his own strength. From the time of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And the thing that is not changing is that God is not consuming them. I was just thinking about the song that we just sang. I don't know if you know this or not. It comes right out of the Bible. It's from Psalm 46, which means it would have been one of the songs that they sang in worship. That's an Israelite worship song. That God does not change. He fights for us. He all these beautiful things. And one of the things that we just sang is that, Oh God, you know the hearts of men, and yet you let them what? Live. And yet you don't consume us. You don't swallow us up in anger and 
frustration and impatience. And, and God's like, hey, Israel, just before I say what I'm about to say, can I remind you, I have not changed. In the same way I was patient and long-suffering with your fathers who turned aside from me, I am still patient with you. In the same way I didn't consume David when he committed adultery and murder after I had blessed him and put him on the throne, in the same way I have not consumed you. So before I say what I'm about to say, can I remind you that I am still kind and loving and long-suffering and slow to anger. Some of us need to hear that today. When we open the Bible and read it, it will confront us. It will confront you. It, it works like a mirror. You read things, you're like, oh, there's an area I need to work on. Oh, there's an area I need to repent of. There's something I need to ask for forgiveness for. Okay? And so it's going to continue to confront us. But it's so important to remember that the God who confronts us doesn't change. He's still a loving, kind father. If you want to know what he's like, go read the parables in Luke. He's the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. He's the woman who lost the coin and sweeps the whole house looking for that precious coin. You're the precious coin. And he's the loving father who sees the prodigal son coming from a distance and he, in a really shameless kind of way, leaves the house, leaves the porch, sees him at a distance and runs to him and embraces him. God has not changed. And he does not consume us. And so here's the invitation in the second part of verse 7. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And one of the beautiful things that hasn't changed about God is he still invites his children to return. This is what repentance is. I don't know how familiar you are with that word. Maybe you're very familiar with it, or maybe you've heard it quoted on movies or used in, a, in an inaccurate way to represent this God who's just angry and wrath and he's beating you into repentance. Repentance is a beautiful word because it's, it represents a beautiful invitation from a loving and kind God to return to him. What do you do when you find yourself walking away from God? And you stop and go, oh no, can I, is it too late to go back? Will he take me back? There's this unchanging invitation. Return to me. Return to me. Parents, it's that unchanging invitation to your children. Even when they're running away in rebellion, please return to me and I will return to you. And now he confronts something that is going on. Not just in their bank accounts, but in their hearts. And he says this, because they ask the question, how, how shall we return? What would it look like, God, for us to return? We've already returned to Israel. We've already returned to the homeland, the promised land. So what would it look like for us to return to you? And so he answers the question, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And then God answers, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. We'll back up a little bit. When God referred to the, his audience, the nation of Israel, in verse 6, as the children of Jacob, that's pretty significant. 
So this nation of Israel comes from the lineage of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. And so oftentimes God will be referred to as the God of Abraham or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or the God of Jacob. And so what's really significant about this particular uh, label for the children of Israel is that he's referring to Jacob, one of their forefathers. And if you know the story of Jacob, uh, he's the uh, conniving twin that stole the birthright. And yet he's the one, we talked about this about three weeks ago, whom God chose to carry forward this beautiful promise that, that God would bless the nations through the, the, the offspring of Abraham. That lineage goes through Jacob, the one who stole the birthright. There's good news in that too, right? <laughs> but what's interesting about the story of Jacob is that he had actually, he took off. I mean, he, if you can imagine, people were pretty upset with Jacob at one point. And so he flees, he exiles. Um, and on returning from a place called Padan Aram, Aram um, he returns from exile and he builds this altar with stones and he calls the place Bethel. And then he makes this promise to God. Like, this is his promise. So he's coming back from exile, going to move back towards his place in God's plan as the one who carries forward the promise of Abraham. And he builds this altar, and he names the place Bethel. And then in Genesis 28, the second half of 22, he says, And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. It's a promise Jacob made to God. And so the, God is confronting them. He's saying, hey, you're, you're one of his children. Hey, children of Jacob, let's not forget the promise that Jacob made. And so now what's happening is the nation of Israel has returned from their own exile back to their rightful place in the geographical region of Israel, which is the, this promised land of the Old Testament. And yet they're not fulfilling their promise, their vow to bring to him the tithe or a tenth. Let's talk for a minute about the tithe. There are plenty of um, wrong and false teachings around giving money to the church. We won't confront them all today. That's not our goal. Our goal is to simply let the scripture speak and teach us so we can apply it to our lives. So what is the tithe? Well, tithe is this beautiful expression of worship. So it's, it's, it's the idea of a tenth of your income. That's what it represents, okay? So the idea is that if you tithe, you take 10% of what God has blessed you with, and then you bring it back to, in this passage, the storehouse, okay, which was the place where you stored the re resources for ministry in the temple. So modern-day context, this is the church. So you bring a tenth, and you would trust that. One, you would say, hey, I'm grateful that you gave us the hundred. Like, we recognize it comes from you. But the second part of that is you go, hey, we also believe by faith that you're going to provide what we need tomorrow. We don't have to save that extra 10% and hoard it in case tomorrow doesn't turn out so well. We can trust that whatever we need tomorrow, you're going to provide. And, and not only that, but that if we actually steward well the 90, we'll have more than enough. So it's not this magical math equation where you go spend 100% of your income but then you overspend and you take 10% and give it to the church, expecting God to somehow pay off your excessive debt. Well, the idea is like, actually, God, we believe you've given us more than enough, so we're going to manage and steward um, what you've given us as though the 90% will be enough, and we're going to give 10% back into the church, trusting that we'll have what we need for tomorrow and that this is enough for today. 
Okay, so that's the principle of the tithe. And so the idea is this, God, I believe you can do more with my 90% than I can do with 100%. That's essentially the essence of the heart behind the tithe. It's not this idea that, hey, God, I, we're willing to go without food. We're willing to go without what we need so that your temple can be blessed. We'll just skip a few meals. It'll be fine. No, it's actually a faith move to say, hey, God, we are stepping out in faith, believing you can do more with the 90 than we could have done if we'd have kept it all the entire 100. And the idea of the tithe is closely related to the Sabbath. What's the idea of the Sabbath? You don't have to work seven days. That lie inside of you that says, man, if I just close one more deal, send one more email, make one more phone call, and you blow right past the Sabbath and don't rest, right? Essentially what you're saying is, I don't trust that God's going to take care of me. The idea of the Sabbath is no rest. Work hard for six days and then rest. Put your plows down. Put your email down. Put your Blackberry down. I already did. I have an iPhone. Put your iPhone down. And just trust that six days was enough. See, it's the same principle. Matter of fact, in the, in the Old Testament, there's this story of the nation of Israel journeying with God through the wilderness and the desert, and he provides food miraculously in the form of manna. And so this is where these two principles come together. If you remember the story, God's like, okay, here's what we're going to do, Moses. I'm going to provide miraculously enough food for the nation to eat in the form of manna. But what were the instructions? Hey, every day, just pick up what you need for that day. You're going to be tempted to grab a little extra in case I don't show up tomorrow, but just trust me, I'm going to show up tomorrow. So Monday, just take what you need. Go to bed, sleep well, trust. Wake up on Tuesday, and guess what? See that I'm going to provide more than enough. You're going to have plenty. And so, yeah. And the only day that you can store up more than you need is the day before the Sabbath. I'll actually provide enough for two days. So go ahead and get enough for the next day so that on the next day you can, you can rest. You can trust that I will provide. And so you can see those two principles coming together, both around our work week and how much energy and time we spend trying to make money, and also around the tithe, how we steward and manage what God does bless us with. Now, there's, a, there's another conversation around, is the, is the tithe still a thing in the New Testament? Because the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about the tithe using the tenth word, the, the word tithe. And so there's actually a couple places where the tithe does come up. Before we get there, I want to address this idea, though, of how God confronts them. He uses an interesting word. It may have caught you off guard. He said, why are you robbing me? Did that catch you off guard? Like, whoa. And think of it that way. Because robbing implies that you're taking something that's not yours. So God didn't say, hey, why didn't you bring me a gift this week? God is saying, hey, why are you robbing me? Why are you taking something that's actually mine? Now, as Christians, we have this worldview that comes to us from the Bible that says, actually, everything I have belongs to God. In Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2, we read this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I like the simple wording of the NIV. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's all his. Now, you, you'll decide if you believe that or not, but that's what the Bible is saying to you. You don't actually own anything. And human history would indicate that is actually true. We can bury you with all your stuff. We can dig a huge grave and put your fancy car in there and all your stuff in there, but you don't take it with you. You actually don't own it. Instead, you are a steward. You're a manager. And God has taught us, even through parables, that he, he gives different amounts to different children to manage by his choice. Some of you have been gifted a lot to steward. Some of, some of you, not as much. There's also the principle of, hey, if you'll be faithful with the little, I'll tr entrust you with more. But the idea is anything you have has been entrusted to you. Like, God's taking something of value that's his and saying, hey, I trust you with this. And so when he says, hey, bring 10% back to the storehouse as an expression of your gratitude and your trust in me, all I'm asking you to do is bring me back what is already mine. That's why the word robbing shows up. That's a, that's a convicting way to think about our possessions, isn't it? Now, we'll get into some of the false teachings around this in a minute, but I just want to look briefly at some of the teachings in the New Testament around giving. In Matthew 23, this is Jesus himself uh, chapter 23, verse 23. Uh, he's confronting the Pharisees. If you don't have a lot of Bible background, these were the religious leaders, teachers of the law. These were the highly moral people in society. And Jesus is confronting them. He's like, man, you guys look like you have it together, but I see your hearts. I know the hearts of men. You guys look like whitewashed tombs. You're shiny on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. And as Jesus is confronting these Pharisees, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These were these valuable spices, and so they were tithing these things, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So you're bringing the tithe. When I look at your spreadsheet, you're all in. The problem is, you're neglecting the weightier matters, the more important things. What, is, what are the more important things? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then look at what he says. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, this would have been a perfect place for Jesus to go, hey, I don't ask for the tithe anymore. That's an Old Testament thing, so don't do that. Just go and be kind to people and show justice. He's like, no, 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 no. I see your bankroll. I see the spreadsheet. You're, you're bringing exactly the 10% and you think you're good, but there's a problem with your heart. You should keep doing that, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In a conversation of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is asked, hey, Jesus, do you expect your followers to pay taxes? To which he responds with a pretty simple response. First of all, he said, hey, uh, somebody give me a coin. 
And just like American currency, if you flip a coin to somebody, you look at it, and you go, hey, who's, whose face is on this? You go, yeah, one of our presidents. I don't know which one, one of them. The same thing was true. You'd put the face of the whoever was in charge. And, like, who's, and he says, hey, whose face is on that coin? And they're like, oh, it's, a, it's Caesar. And so he responds, he says, okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Be a faithful citizen. Contribute. And what? And to God the things that are God's. And then they marveled at him. Jesus saying, hey, yeah, you should pay your taxes. As a participant in any society, you should participate in society and contribute as you can. Yeah, pay your taxes. Oh, and you should also give to God the things that are God's. Now, when we get past these two verses in the New Testament, the word tithe doesn't show up. The church is giving like crazy. But the Apostle Paul, for example, doesn't teach on the tithe. So some would say, well, then maybe the tithe doesn't matter anymore. Yet we get into the New Testament. There's a different word that gets used. The word koinonia will come up. And you go, wait a second, what does that have to do with money? So the word koinonia uh, means fellowship. It can also be translated partnership. And it also gets translated combined contribution. And really those three concepts overlap in the church. We think about that. So like when we gather together in Koinonia, we're gathering together in a fellowship. You and I have a kinship with one another. Spiritually speaking, we're siblings. You've got a lot of siblings when you look around. Like th this room is full of your brothers and sisters. It's our fellowship. But not only that, we're on a common mission together, right? Like there are certain things you pursue in life that are different from what I pursue in life, but there are some common things that we all pursue making disciples of the nations, tending to the needs of the poor, sharing the gospel. And so there's a partnership in what we do. That's koinonia. We have a partnership. Now, I'm not partners with you in your business, but we are partners in the gospel, and that's koinonia. But then the word gets used and translated in, the, in, the, in this way, contribution. And I'll read a verse that has it in it in just a minute. But the idea is this, and we've talked about this before. When I throw in financially and you throw in, neither one of us knows how much either gives, because that's not necessary. What we're saying is, hey, we're all in together. We're part of this kinship. We're part of this partnership. And when we contribute together, we're saying what? Man, I'm all in. Koinonia with you. We're bringing a common gift of worship okay so think about when we sing and the voices fill this room we're bringing a common gift of worship together and some of us sing louder than others and that's fine and some of us sing prettier than others and that's fine but as you lift your voice and i lift my voice we're bringing one gift of worship so that word gets used to describe the way we give in church and just give you an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God 
because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. That's the word koinonia. So they're not just paying taxes or paying their HOA dues. What they're bringing financially is an act of worship. Koinonia. Okay, so you see that? That idea, that concept? Okay, so when you get to the, like the book, if you read in the book of Acts, how the church just starts blowing up. Like the first day of the church, opening day, they add 3,000 people. They go from just a couple hundred to like 3,000. It just blows up. And there's this beautiful description of what's happening as the church is blowing up. You'll see it in Acts 2. You'll see it again in Acts 4. I'm just going to read a little bit from Acts 2. This is a description of this idea of koinonia through generosity. Verse 44 says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. Does that sound familiar? They were all together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had what? Need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a beautiful picture of the church. Members of the church living sacrificially and generously and it didn't mean that they were, they were going without. Like, they were receiving their own food with glad and generous hearts. Like, the Lord was blessing them. But what a beautiful picture of, like, true biblical community where we say, hey, I'm all in. I'm all in with you. And just on a personal level, I was thinking about um, Hallie and I, um, since the day we got married, um, we have just been fiercely committed to the tithe. And I think there have been seasons, I don't know if she would say this, but for me anyway, where that was, that was more out of obligation or legalism because I'm, I'm in ministry, and so in case anybody asks me, I can say yes, I check the box. But then there have been sweet seasons of that being an expression of worship where like we were just struggling to make ends meet. We were like, no, we are going to trust the Lord. Let's steward well the 90, and let's trust that it will be enough. And sometimes God has provided through work for me or for her, Sometimes he has provided financial blessings from others. There was a time where we, once we paid all the bills, we had zero money left to buy groceries. And I let two men in the church know where we were, just like, this is where we're at. And by the end of the day, they both had shown up on our doorsteps with um, more groceries than we could, than we knew what to do with. And not just like, you know, cans of green beans and, you know, just the basics, like there were double stuff Oreos in one of those bags. Why? Because we were all in together. And these two families had more than enough. And like, oh wait, your family needs like, oh no big like we'll yeah, without hesitation. No expectation of anything in return, no strings attached. Absolutely. And they knew us well enough to even know what we liked. And they came and they blessed us out of the abundance. Now they were responsible for stewarding their 90% and even within that 90% they still had more to give. Isn't that beautiful? They had more than enough. We'll pick up Malachi back in chapter 3 at the end of, or the beginning of verse 10. 
So God says, here's how you can return to me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Bring the whole 10% to the church that there may be food in my house. That's the concept of that there may be supplies for ministry available. Same concept. You guys aren't tithing with dill and cumin and sheep and goats. I mean, maybe you can. We use a different currency. But he said, here's how you can return to me. Bring the full tithe. This will bring up questions sometimes in church um, that are beyond my pay grade to answer, like, okay, do I tithe off of net or gross? Well, what happens if I can't afford 10%? Is God, will he accept the 8% or the 6%? Like, okay, if those are questions you have, first of all, I want to invite you out of legalism into grace. And then I would love to set up a conversation with a mature believer in the faith who understands finances even better than I do, who could mentor you in that and help you sort all that out. Right? The point isn't a legalistic uh, approach to this as much as it is the heart behind it. What's going on in your heart? And so after that, in verse 10, God says something interesting. He says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a, that's a pretty big statement. Malachi's not saying that. God is. Test me in this. Test me in this. Now, I want to caution you um, to just spend a lot of energy testing God on things. I don't know. Is it my time to live or die? I don't know. I'm going to jump out of this airplane without a parachute and just see. Okay. He didn't say, test me that way. He's not promising to curb the law of gravity for your insanity. But he is inviting you to test him in this. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. God is inviting his people to bring the full, wholehearted tithe to the storehouse out of gratitude, out of trust in who he is as an act of worship and put him to the test to see if he will fulfill his promise. We'll get to what he's promising in just a minute. But I want to talk about what this requires. If you're sitting there today and you're going, yes, I'm going to test God in this one, okay? I want to give you just some instruction around this. First of all, tithing requires healthy stewardship of what God has entrusted to you. If you're living with excessive debt, credit card payments that are going up and not down, and the only way you make ends meet at the end of the month is to put more on the credit card, that's not healthy stewardship. There would be some who would argue, don't use credit cards ever. There were some in the middle who would say, yeah, as long as you've got a plan and it's part of it. Yeah, and so like, I'm not speaking to that. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're living beyond your means. So if you're living beyond your means, and you're going to continue living beyond your means, and you give 10%, here's what you can expect. You'll be even 10% further in the hole next month. God's not promising to pay off excessive debt. Go live large. Just make sure you cut a check for 10%, and then I'll make the math work. That's not what he's promising here. Tithing requires healthy stewardship 
of the 90%. So your budget, if you have a spreadsheet budget, we have one for our family, is, is the plan on how you're going to steward the 90%. If your budget plan is how you're going to spend the 100%, and then you're going to go another 10%, you know the math doesn't work, right? Just want to make sure we're aware of that. It's not a magic trick. God's not saying, hey, I'll pull off a magic trick. Just test me this. Write a hot check to the church, and I will make you rich. That's not what God is saying. The tithing requires healthy stewardship, and tithing requires faith and trust in God's provision. This is not an act of legalism. It will benefit you not if you're doing this as an obligation because you're worried about somebody else in the church coming up into you and asking you. If you are truly stewarding your finances to the best of your ability and you desire to tithe as an expression of worship, gratitude, and trust, then I encourage you to put God to the test. See if you can not just live, but thrive off of the 90%. See what God does with the 90% versus what you do with the 100. Hey, you're not putting me to the test. You're, you're putting God to the test. That's between you and him. Put God to the test. All right, let's finish up this passage. We'll finish verse 10 down to 12 now. Here's the promise. This is where a lot of false teachings come in. Here's the promise. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is, you say it, Okay, that's the promise. God's not promising to make you rich. He may make some of you rich. That's according to his plan, his providence, and his wisdom. But that's not the promise he's making you or me. He's saying, if you will trust me in this, I will open the windows of heaven and I will pour out blessings. Some of those blessings will come from the, the, the fruit of your hands, the working hard and the job you've got. I may provide miraculously in a way that you can't explain or understand. I may work by working on your heart and how you steward the 90%, but here's what I'm promising you. I'm promising you that there will be no more need. Your groceries may come from a Walmart delivery out of a bank account that's got plenty in it and your groceries may come from one of the members in the church who has more than enough and wants to come bless you. But I'm telling you this, test me in this, God says, you will have no more need. He goes on to say, and I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. There's another promise. I will protect you. I will protect your vineyards. I will protect your business. I will protect you from the plan of the enemy to destroy you and devour you. That's the second part of the promise. And then the third part of the promise is, then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So the promise is threefold. I will open up the windows of heaven and pour down blessing until there's no more need. I will protect your land and your crops from the devourer, and then the nations will call you blessed. So just a quick note on that. Last week, I think, we talked about where God was rebuking the men for divorcing their wives and then marrying foreign wives. 
and going after pagan gods. There's a false teaching around that, um, around uh, this false understanding of ethnicity, that God doesn't like it when ethnicities blend, or right? And that's just a total bogus false teaching here. The idea wasn't that. The idea was that God was blessing the nation of Israel, and he had a plan to bring into the world his son through the ethnicity of the Jews. It was his plan. He's like, I'm choosing a family. I'm going to choose this one. I'm choosing Abraham to start a family, and I'm going to bring my son into the world through a virgin one day, and that virgin young lady will be a descendant of Abraham. It was God's plan. But nowhere along the way is he forsaking the nations. Matter of fact, when he says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm going to do this, the very first time he mentions it, what does he say? Oh, and by the way, Abraham, all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the family groups will be blessed through your descendants. As a matter of fact, when the nation of Israel returns after Cyrus's decree, one of the promises through Zechariah and Haggai was, I'm going to integrate the nations into you. You don't go integrate into them. Don't go chase after their gods. Let's invite them to come join us. And so here, once again, God is saying, if you'll do this, if you'll trust me in this and test me in this, not only will I make sure all your needs are met, like you'll have more than enough, more than enough. Your, your needs will be met. I will protect your crops and your land from the devourer. Not only that, the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. You, your life, my blessing in your life will be a testimony to the nations. The nations will look and go, look at how their God provides for them. He must be a good God. He must be the creator and the owner of all things if he has that many resources. That they can take 10% and take it back to the temple and live off the 90 and have more than enough. What a great God they must serve. You know, God desires these same things for you and me, right? To bless you until there is no more need. Take care of all your needs. Protect the work of your hands. And not only that, that your life, your family would be a testimony to the nations. I'm going I'm to leave that part there. Just want to read a, a brief conclusion here before we ask some questions. Here's the thing. God does not promise to make you rich. So if you need a minute to be sad about that, I'll give you a minute. Okay, you better... God has not promised to make you rich. God does not promise to pay off your excessive debt. I'll say this, though. Although, if you'll engage in a healthy stewardship plan and see your given as, as an expression of trust and worship, God does promise to help you get that excessive debt paid off. That's His grace. He's going to help you. And He will restore your finances to a place of stability. He will do that work in you. That's why we have to have stewardship along with the principles of tithing. When God's people bring the full tithe into the storehouse in wholehearted worship, he promises to provide for them until there is no more need and that his provision for you will be a testimony to the nations. That's what God's promising, and he says to you, put me to the test in this. I want to ask a few questions here to think about how we might apply this to our lives today. 
And I just want to say this. If you've got follow-up questions around finances, we have people in our church who are gifted in finances and stewardship. Matter of fact, I forgot to announce this earlier. Our new executive pastor is in town, finally and permanently. Yay, Clovis and Anita are here. I did not ask for his permission to make this announcement. I'll say he is one of the people in our church who I would say has a really good handle on stewardship. That's why we hired him to be our executive pastor. But there are others like him among our elders who if you need to like sit down with somebody and go through finances, like kind of lay it out on the table, you, we could set you down with trusted men and women to help you with that. Okay? And if you're like, well, hey, how do I do this? Do I write a check? All that kind of stuff. Now, I'll point you to Debbie Douglas, our finance manager. She's all things finance. She has all those answers, the best way to do that. that those, that's not my specialty. My specialty is teaching the Bible. But I want to ask some questions here that can help us think about how to apply these things to our lives. Okay, so here's the first question. What do you think about the concept of tithing and giving offerings? If you're like confused on that, tithing is the 10%, offering is whatever is given above or beyond that. You think of it that way. They, Malachi says tithing and contributions, but tithing. So what do you think about that concept? Do you see it as an obligation? Or do you see it as an act of worship? you see it as a way to partner with God and his people? What do you think about that concept? Think for a minute over just the testimony of your own life. In what ways have you been faithful or unfaithful in your financial stewardship? Have you ever wasted money? One of my early mentors in the faith said this to me. And I was talking to him about making money. He said, Jason, show me a man who's broke at $30,000 a year, and I'll show you a man who will be broke at $300,000 a year. That man doesn't need more money. He needs stewardship principles. So surely we can all relate. Now, there are some of you who are just weird, and you've been a good steward since you were like five. You still have your first dollar. That's awesome. The rest of us struggle, right? So just think about how well have you stewarded those amazing things God has blessed you with and given to you? Have you been faithful and unfaithful? Here's the third question. God begins this section of Malachi by reminding us of his unchanging nature. How does that assurance affect your willingness to trust God in your finances? You read the Bible, you go, man, he showed up big time for Israel with manna. I mean, he showed up big time by bring him water out of a rock like he showed up big time for the nation of israel so how does that concept of god doesn't change how does that influence or impact your willingness to trust him in your finances so the promise that god makes is this to pour out blessings until there is no more need do you truly believe in this promise Do you, do you believe it? Now, I'm asking you to be honest. I'm not even asking you to answer that to me, just to be honest with yourself. Do you actually believe that promise? And if so, do your actions align with your belief? So this invitation includes this, or this passage includes an invitation from God to test him on this promise. So I'm just going to leave you with this. What steps could you take this week to test God in this promise?
I have no idea what's going on in your life financially other otherwise. But surely there's a step you could take this week. What step could you take this week to begin to live in this promise that God is making to you as his people, to me, to you? So I want to land here. Um, If you've got more questions, please come see us. But if there's something churning in your heart today, before you grab your spreadsheet, your checkbook, or any of that mess, would you just come talk to a prayer partner today? If God's stirring your heart in any kind of way, just conviction, or maybe you don't even know what it is. You're just like, man, something's happening in here, and I don't know what it is. Would you come grab a prayer partner? And we call them that because they want to partner with you by praying for you. They'll be down at the front. Um, elders will be available in the commons. Um, ask, ask our elders to wear the lanyard so you can see us. And So if any questions come up from today, come grab an elder. And come grab a staff member. Um, you can even go to the welcome desk. If you're like, I don't know who's who here, that's fine. Go to the welcome desk. There are some fantastic volunteers who will help get you connected with the person you need to connect with. I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, our worship team is going to come back out and lead us in one final song. So let's pray together. Um, Father, thank you for this really challenging, um, hard, and even exciting teaching from Malachi. Um, God, we know that in the church today, there's a lot of misunderstanding around finances and giving and making donations and tax deductions. And and God, there's a lot of misunderstanding around what you actually promise. So today, we don't want to stand on false promises. God, we don't want to give money under a false premise that somehow you're going to bless our finances and, and make us rich. But what we want to do, God, is we really want to believe you today. Like inside of each one of us, we want to trust you today. We want to take you up on this invitation. So, Father, I'm just praying for us as a church. God, I'm praying for any visitors here, anybody listening online, that today would not be received as a message of legalism or obligation but that, God, we would read this passage of Scripture as a sweet invitation to come and to see just how good you are. Father, would you help us as a church to believe and live in the promise of Malachi 3? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.